Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a guy who's been on the front lines of the convergence of our industry and technology for uh, quite some time. Norman, we're, I think, almost exactly the same age. Uh, uh, I, I, and, I'll grant that you look probably younger than me, but that, uh, that's all right. <laughs> so we, we've both been at this for a long time, whatever it is we're doing. And I'm talking about Norman Guadagno, the CMO of Acoustic. Uh, which is one of the companies that is redefining how brands and the cloud work together. Uh, and we are thrilled to have you here. So welcome, Norman. I am thrilled to be here, Matt. Thank you. And uh, thanks for that introduction. I, I will remind you, by the way, the people on the front lines are the ones who get shot first. So uh, it's uh, just one of those things to keep in mind. Yeah, listen, in my neighborhood where we are by Penn Station, you know, the definition of front lines changes quickly. So, yeah, I imagine uh, so. <laughs> oh, oh my, oh my, oh my gosh. So, Norman, I, I, I'm fascinated by your background, which is primarily in psych. Um, when I was going through your uh, voluminous files that our great minds crack research team ginned up. <laughs> um, I was expecting to see engineering in there somewhere and it isn't. Um, and so I'd love to go back to your days in Rochester and at Rice, two great, great schools. And did you imagine then um, in your academic life, again, some time ago, um, that you would be weaving your way and working for some of the iconic tech companies that this country's ever created, companies like Microsoft, Oracle, and, and a bunch more that we'll touch on. Yeah, it's, uh, it is funny when you think about it. And I, I do occasionally uh, think about it in that I, I have always considered, and I refer to myself sometimes as, a, as an accidental marketer. And when I was in college, and then I went to graduate school. Uh, the reason I studied psychology is I'm deeply fascinated with why people make the decisions they make, why people do the things they do. And I also happen to uh, have this good fortune to be old enough now, uh, mature enough, I guess, that uh, I, the year I entered college, we were using punch cards to run programs. The year I graduated from college, and it's probably true of you, Matt, as well, uh, I owned a Macintosh. And that, uh, I've always been fascinated with technology. And the fact that that acceleration of technology happened so fast over the course of four years from stacks of punch cards to a Mac uh, really was... A transformative in my thinking about the importance of technology. So even though I was moving on to grad school, because when you don't know what you want to do with your life, you go to grad school and trying to figure out how people think, I realized that one of the ways that which people would be thinking and behaving in the future was endlessly interacting with technology. And so I, I found during graduate school that I started focusing more and more on this intersection of how people use technology, what can the technology learn from them, uh, even you know, towards uh, you know, my third year or so of grad school, I was working on a, a project where we were collecting 
keystroke data, uh, because that was before we had graphical interfaces, uh, on how people used uh, a spreadsheet, in this case, Lotus 123. Uh, that would be then used to help design uh, ultimately the graphical version of 123. So this, this notion of people spend more time, as, just as you and I are doing in this moment, interacting with and through technology than any other medium, uh, that became clear to me. And, and because I was so fascinated with people and with uh, the technology, and because I also had no desire to become an academic once I realized what it would entail, I, uh, I quickly figured out that I wanted to go to work in the technology space. And, and then I did so. And so it was sort of a uh, stumbling, but also a little bit of thinking that fundamentally the world's changing and I was really interested in understanding what that means for us as people, ultimately. Fantastic. And you enter the digital age in, you know, what by any definition was really the very beginning. Absolutely, right? Certainly there's a beginning of the, the PC desktop era and, uh, you know, where people of our generation are sometimes made fun of for still liking to, uh, you know, use punctuation and type and send email and uh, things like that. But, but that was sort of formative for us. Like uh, probably like you, right? I, I was sent off to college with a typewriter because that's how you wrote papers. It was. And that transformation happening real time. And at that age for me, uh, you know, definitely was formative. And, and now looking all these years later to, to see how far we've come and frankly, how far we haven't come. Yeah. And no, we can talk it, more well, about that. Well, well, well put and interesting. So uh, there's so much ground to cover with you, Norman. I, I want to sort of put a 15 year period sort of into one box, if you will. And um you had a, a, a number of different gigs with Microsoft, uh, also at Oracle. And I'm fascinated by a more obscure entry, perhaps, uh, working as a director of product marketing in 1996 for the Internet Profiles Corp, yes. which was one of the early, early players take it any way you want, but reflecting on where we are now with the benefit of hindsight, looking back on that part of your career, you know, what really sticks with you and what helped you pave the way for where you uh, are now at Acoustic? You, you found one of the more interesting entries in my, uh, my career there, which was uh, at iPro Internet Profiles, which was uh, really uh, the first or one of the couple of first companies that was trying to measure what was happening on the internet. And I remember being in our office in downtown San Francisco and we had a closet that we had a server in that ran very hot. The, air, the office didn't have central air, if I remember correctly. And we were getting all of the log files from yahoo.com and playboy.com and a variety of other sites and then analyzing these log files because before the days of just bringing up google analytics and seeing how the site's doing in real time 
you had to analyze the log files and you had to figure out how to make sense out of massive amounts of data. And the thing that sticks out for me, not only just the, the sheer absurdity of like what we did then versus what we do now, uh, but also just the, re the reality of the, the amount of data being generated then was so small compared to what it is now, but so large compared to what we had really seen before, given the, uh, the spike in traffic, the massive amount of people who are trying to be online, figure out what's going on. And uh, that to me said that there was, there was a, there was a shift coming. It turned out that shift was really ultimately you know, more than a decade later as cloud computing truly started to take off. And the notion of having, you know, analyzing log files in a closet uh, that's overheating on, uh, uh, you know, in a skyscraper in San Francisco just doesn't make sense anymore because we've had to move to a world where the data is, for all intents and purposes, infinite. And finding a way to, to move to the cloud is was critical. And then this is the brilliance of the people who were behind AWS and Azure and, and other work that was done so that we could essentially tap into nearly infinite computing resources. Now, does it get us any closer to understanding? Uh, I don't know, but it definitely is the case that we were seeing this spike early on of how much data truly could be generated. And uh, there was just no way that we were going to forever scale up the client server universe to be able to accommodate it. So some of the companies that go back to that era are still with us. Microsoft today is a very different company than it was when you started there in sure. July, July of 2003. Oracle, of course, has continued to evolve, some their own technology, some through acquisition. Um, but there are a number of other great brands that go back to that period in the mid to late 90s that didn't make it. We remember brands like Alta Vista and Lycos oh, yes. and, and Disney's foray with go.com. Yeah. Dot, dot Norman, you have real... Uh, insight here and and perspective what do you think the characteristics were of those that made it versus those that didn't make it yeah it's it's it, it's a terrific question and i look at it honestly through through two or three key lenses because i, I do think about this problem a lot one lens i use uh, often is just the the reality of the ability to adapt. Like if, if a company cannot adapt to change and adapt to change quickly, if a company gets wedded to the belief that as unfortunately sometimes companies do, I have the best way to solve the problem. This thing's just a lark. Then they will get left behind or they will get reinvented or purchased and repurchased and repurchased again and again and again. That's, and, and I think a lot of the companies you mentioned and many others failed to realize that the, uh, the space and it's just pick search, right? There, there was no place for six search engines or eight search engines. There was only a place ultimately for one and a half at best. And for uh, the company that figured out how to make it work fastest, cheapest, and how to monetize it most effectively in this case, Google. So I think one lens is that I think the second lens and I'm, I, I will give you a, 
a quote that I believe has been attributed to Larry Ellison, and I apologize if I'm misattributing it here, but, uh, you know, the, the quote Larry said at one point back, back in the day, when looking at all of these startups that were vying to be the next thing, uh, and Larry basically referred to them as, you know, ultimately, they're just features in someone else's larger platform. And that notion that all of these hot technologies and hot companies in tech, generation after generation, inevitably, many of them roll up to become features in a bigger platform. And a few of them become the next generation platform. But uh, I'm thinking about this here as we're talking. It's only yesterday, I believe, that the, um, uh, the Salesforce acquisition of Slack closed. And uh, Slack was a hot, hot company. It changed the world. And it could have been the next big platform. But it turns out it's now going to be part of the bigger platform that Salesforce is trying to build. And so that lens also is critical for thinking about the evolution of companies in this space. And I think the third thing, and we all have to admit this because we've all worked on these things, sometimes ideas are just dumb or bad ideas. And they may have a lot of momentum in the moment, but when you look back on it, you're like, huh, probably not the greatest idea and probably not the right approach to take. But sometimes with incredible expense. I mean, I, I forgot the exact number. I think it was around a billion dollars that Disney blew on go.com. So I, would, I wouldn't doubt it. I, I would yeah. not doubt it, right? And, and here was an instance of you know, Disney then you know, versus Disney now and, and Disney with Disney Plus and uh, you know, incredible subscriber growth through the pandemic and trying to, to rethink how they engage with their audience and Disney then in the year of, of Disney, you know, go.com was pre iPhone and the massive shift to mobile based applications. And now that we live in an app based world, if you don't have an app, uh, then you're, you're not really participating in the, the real time ecosystem, right? None of this was clear at that point in time because our, our vision of the future is, is, always incredibly myopic and grounded in our own sense of the present. Well said. And I certainly think the counter Disney plus, I think, you know, they're doing a tremendous job. You know, yes, with absolutely. Um, I'm a fan and, and I think they they've, they've really done a great job with it. And I mean, the entire rise of the uh, over the top networks has been uh, another sea change that I think we're, we're still in the early days of how it's going to affect ultimately uh, broadcast TV and cable TV and, and the ability for anyone to choose where they consume their content. Yeah, no, no question. That's one of the very hottest areas of the business. So you've also had 10 years at a number of successful companies that started one way and then became part of something else. And uh, Wirestone comes to mind, which was acquired by uh, Accenture Interactive. Talk about the rise of those consultancies, uh, which are so dominant today in so many ways. You know, the great brands, a lot of them have disappeared and emerged in different ways. I actually was very close to the senior leadership team way back when at what was then called Ernst & Winnie. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then became Ernst & Young when they merged with Arthur Young. Some yep. of the other brands like Cooper's Library have disappeared. Um, but two in particular, Accenture and Deloitte, have really reinvented themselves and they cross over into a lot of what we can call Norman's world. Yeah. Uh, Give us uh, your perspective on that, Norman. <laughs> Absolutely the, the case, right? This, this notion that you know Accenture, I believe, is the largest or the second largest creative agency in the world right now, based on you know, the most recent data I've seen, and, and I'm sure you've seen as well. Uh, and uh, I think that there's, there's an interesting through line when you think about uh, agencies. Right? At the early part of the, the, the current sort of digital era, when everything having to do with designing and building a website was new, right? it was easy for a small group of people to build a, a consultancy and agency and, and grow it quickly because there were just an infinite number of potential clients who knew nothing and were eager to get an answer. And, and many of those clients, if they turned to, uh, you know, an Accenture or, you know, even a, a you know, a Boston consulting or, uh, you know, Bain, there wasn't necessarily the level of expertise in the technology or the creative elements that were required to make these things happen. And so that sort of rise happened very quickly but at the same time, you know, the Accentures of the world saw that the relationships they had and hold with the largest companies on the planet were, in fact, being stretched and pulled in new directions. Because simultaneously with that, and this is an important element to this entire transformation, we also saw something that was unprecedented. And I don't think, honestly, Matt gets enough attention in the last 10 to 15 years. We saw massive amounts of dollars inside companies to buy IT shift from the IT department to the marketing department. We saw CMOs somehow over the course of a decade, in many cases, control the biggest budget for IT in the company. And if you think back 20 years ago, that was just absurd. Why would marketing have massive tech budgets. So with this transformation, the, the agencies and consultancies that would sell traditionally services to IT now had to turn and actually deal with a completely different buyer. And they may not even have spoken that buyer's language. So there's, there's a whole set of forces that have been driving this fundamental change. Again, that sort of roll up, the injection of, and the, uh, I think the the beautiful melding of the creative aspects that marketing, advertising, and digital have with the technology aspects. We used to think about these things as completely separate and who cared what a piece of technology looked like or felt like to the user. But that also came together. So companies, and we'll just pick on Accenture because they're the biggest, right? They had to move out of just being able to solve the problem with a bunch of programmers or or designers or engineers and move into being able to have creative customer focused solutions. And the marketing CMOs with their bigger budgets wanted to have discussions with people who understood their point of view and how they were trying to solve the problems, not, oh, it's just another system in a back office. And so all of these forces were coming together 
And it's left us today where uh, there has been this massive transformation. Amazing stuff. Inadvertently, you just gave us a great segue uh, to start talking a little bit about acoustic. Uh, reflecting sort of the swing of the pendulum from the old definition of IT to a more marketing definition driven of IT, you join Acoustic as their first CMO. Talk about those early conversations you had when they were recruiting you and give us the story of your journey to Acoustic. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it is interesting when you think about, as marketers, we, we think about technology all the time because we think about, we don't have to think about technology, we think about data. And, and the tools that were used to, to get that data. When I was leaving my, uh, my previous company after four successful years there building and, and running a marketing uh, program and, and helping the company uh, reposition itself and be successful when I was at Carbonite, I was looking for an opportunity that would give me the chance to uh, continue to, to build. I, I like building things, uh, but would also give me the chance to uh, perhaps take a little bit more of the point of view of I've been a big consumer of technology. There was an infinite number of choices out there. I kind of wanted to actually get engaged in helping produce and sell some of that technology to my peers because I felt that there was still opportunities for improvement. There are always opportunities for improvement. So when the uh, when I was recruited to uh, to speak with Acoustic, uh, you know, at that time. It was just as uh, just as the carve out had happened for the uh, for those who uh, are interested. The acoustic was born in July of 2019 as a, a complete carve out of a set of products and people and customers from IBM. The short history is over the course of a decade plus, IBM had decided it wanted to get into the Martech space, and so it went acquired a bunch of startups. Here we go again, right? companies are really features who uh, become parts of a bigger platform. IBM decided to pursue that. They bought some great companies and great products along with it. But as IBM continued to mature and, and evolve, it didn't really fit their strategic plan. So they decided to package it up, sell it off. We were uh, All those assets were acquired by a private equity firm. Uh, and Acoustic was born as a brand new MarTech vendor, but one that already had several thousand clients and products that were proven over time. So when I was uh, introduced to it, I was like, wow, that's very interesting. Here's an opportunity to sort of do the reverse, right? Go back to something that's more of a standalone, but now is its own platform and its own integrated solution for the problems and build up and serve the needs of the market. In our case, the sort of upper mid market, lower end enterprise, which was a sweet spot that we're aiming for with some great marketing technology. And that to me was like, okay, I have to build the brand. I have to build a marketing team. I have to do all of these things. And I have to use my own products, which we do. So you get to learn hands-on, which is always fun. It's you know, the, uh, the chef that has to eat his own food off the line every single day. You have to really appreciate it that way. And, uh, and now, two years into it, we've built a brand. We've built the engine. We're growing the business slowly in a very competitive marketplace. But we feel like we've accomplished Quite a lot. And, and I get to have discussions with other CMOs and other marketers all the time about the challenges they face. 
And the challenges are still there. We've not solved many of the hard problems. We've just solved parts of the hard problems. And that's, I think, what keeps all of us going is that there's still big problems to solve in this space. So the core value proposition, as I understand it for Acoustic, is delivering technology to help businesses grow. Yes. You, Absolutely. Absolutely. You the reference- easiest way to put it. <laughs> Great. So you referenced that it's a highly competitive space. I can't think of an industry right now where you've got more interesting, big players who are aggressively in the cloud space. Adobe comes to mind. Certainly Amazon comes to mind. Certainly Google comes to mind. On and on and on and on. Oracle, companies that you've been at, Microsoft. Talk about where Acoustic fits in that ecosystem. I see you, though very well credentialed, coming out of IBM as more of a challenger brand in some ways. Talk about the competitive landscape and as CMO, what you're doing to position Acoustic to be successful in that competitive landscape. It is a very competitive landscape. Uh, You mentioned a handful of very big companies that are big players, you forgot, um, you know, another 7,000 or so that are uh, in the space as well, but we'll we'll save that for another uh, session where we can list them all out. There are a lot of players, Salesforce as well, HubSpot, companies that have built in uh, really substantial businesses. And I look on it through the lens of yes, but in that when you actually look at the set of companies that are solving the problems that are most compelling to CMOs today, the how do I connect over multi-channels to my audience? How do I ensure that I can have access to multiple types of data and access different places where the data may live in CDPs? How can I ensure that I have uh, the tools that provide me the right insights into the journeys my customers are taking? Every one of those companies is at a different stage of its evolution in being able to deliver on the needs of the marketer today. And what we've done with Acoustic is we were able to, in some sense, sort of leapfrog over a generation as we built the next generation of our platform, which will be coming into the market over the course of the next few years. We believe that we're solving the problems that are front and center for marketers now. We have a strong multi-channel hub in our acoustic campaign product. We have other pieces that address those needs. And we're looking forward to and focusing on the reality of the challenges they're going to face in the coming few years as we think about the massive changes to data and data privacy issues, the death of cookies, the fundamental shift away from third-party data and how it's used. So all of those are inputs into us trying to build a strategy and a story that separates us from the pack and delivers something of high value to our target customers. And, And we listen carefully to them and we're trying to build something that will help them get the momentum they need in, in an overwhelming market. And that I think is, is one of the big things we bring to the table. The other is we're small but big, as I like to think of it. We're not nearly the size of a, of a Salesforce or Oracle or great companies, 
but we are much more intimate. And so most of our customers uh, interact with myself or our CEO in, in a way that they may not get at a bigger competitor. Okay, so that personal touch, if you will. Yes, indeed. Talk about technology for a minute. And, you know, I'm a layman in this area, but how much variance is there? You know, we mentioned five or six of the big players, and then there's another 7,000 players. At its core, is everybody sort of playing with the same stuff or does it vary wildly? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a twofold answer to that. Uh, one of which is there are many things at its core that are just you write an email, you send an email. Uh, and for many businesses, that's, that's probably sufficient. Where it starts to really differentiate is the technology that ties the pieces together, the technology that addresses how easy is it for it to be used across marketing teams and other teams inside the business, and how easy is it to get the insights that you need to make the next decision. Because technology fundamentally is just technology. It's like you tell it to do something, it goes and hopefully does what you tell it to do, but it can't really uh, tell you what you should be doing. It can tell you what it sees in terms of patterns, trends, response rates, all sorts of interesting pieces of data, but it's still the people that are, are trying to figure out, hey, I'm selling this widget. Uh, what's the best way to get this in front of my potential customers? People are responding to my Instagram, but they're not responding to my TikTok. People don't seem to want email from me or they do seem to want email from me. Should I offer a coupon? Should I, what should I do? Why are people coming to my website and, and abandoning? Those are the questions that there's not always a simple answer. Someone has to step back and say, okay, how does this connect to this, connect to this? And when you start to tie it together, those insights actually drive the value you get from the platform. So there are similarities, but there are a lot of differences. And I think each company in this space tries to add a unique way in which they, they tie together the pieces and solve the right problems for a marketer and for larger teams, actually. Great, great. Really insightful. You touched on it, um, but it's going to become a much hotter area in the next years. And that's that intersection of data and privacy. We're seeing increased government action at the state level, national level, EU, UK, et cetera. What's your take on the regulatory environment and has the industry sort of blown the opportunity in many respects to continue to self-regulate? Uh, that, that is a big conversation that we a lot of time talking about. Uh, Self-regulation is a great idea. And some companies have said, yep, we're going to do it. Uh, Apple is certainly an example of that. But to consumers and to businesses, self-regulation is only as good as mm, the companies that are doing it and their business decision to continue to do it. Government regulations are and can be sometimes difficult and or unreasonable, but they 
uh, it, they hopefully and usually are turning a blind eye to the individual needs of any business. And the, the ongoing sort of clash of an industry that has let itself, uh, I think, go too far in, without regulation and government regulations that maybe are now a little bit reactionary has left us where we are today, where there is, uh, there's a, a lot of conflicting ideas about the right path forward. And there's a lot of uh, activity, good activity on the part of the industry and the part of, of governments across the globe to come up with better models. The thing that I actually think is most interesting in this and that is still the, the, uh, the weakest voice at the table is frankly the voice of individual consumers around the globe. I think people are dramatically undereducated and unaware of the true deep privacy and security issues that we're going to be facing and that they're facing today. And that until people become more aware of the data that exists about them, about others that could exist, the data trail that we all leave through the world every single day, and the potential threats from private and or state actors against us and our businesses, we're going to continue to, in some ways, be sort of on the receiving end of whatever the industry and governments come up with. And I'm not sure that's actually the right thing over the long term. Well, when you see these, some of these high profile, and it's mostly theater, I think, some of the high profile Silicon Valley executives being called to testify in Congress. Mm -hmm. And you see people like uh, Chuck Grassley, who's probably about 85, or Orrin Hatch, yep. who I know, I know just stepped down, but was well into his 80s. And, you know, uh, they were dazzled by the star power, uh, incredibly illiterate about <laughs> technology. Uh, I was amazed that you think they all have, you know, proper staffs preparing them. <laughs> for things like that. And I, and, and you, it was just amazing to watch the lack of literacy about the subject matter they were trying to tackle and understand with an eye towards potential legislation. Yep. That has been a great ally to Silicon Valley, the ignorance of government. Consumers, which you touched on, equally ignorant in a different way. You know, all of us do the same thing. When we want to do something or search for something or buy something and we scroll down, we accept whatever the conditions are. Yes, we do. Without reading them. Typically, there are multiple paragraphs in a two-point font <laughs> and we just want to get on with whatever we're doing. Uh, and in general terms, uh, it feels like we've traded our privacy for the right to all this, quote, free stuff that we do on our mobile phones. Um, but it's not free. And when you see the recent ransomware incidents, that could be a tipping point in my mind of what's to come. And, and you touched on it. It's a very complicated world we've created now. It, it is. And you hit on so many key points there. We are, we are, as people, for the most part, impatient. And 
the speed at which technology delivers information, goods, and services to us has made us even more impatient. And that impatience keeps us from paying attention to all those little uh, agreements that we click and agree to. And we are also, for better or worse, as individuals, uh, we don't tend to think about the larger ecosystem of which we're a part of until there's a ransomware attack on a gas line and we can't get the energy we need, or there's a ransomware attack on a hospital, which is, by the way, one of the most uh, frequent targets. Why is Why are hospitals a frequent target and other governments for things like ransomware? Because of the many hands problem. In hospitals, there's one machine that's used by multiple people over the course of a day. And that means there's bunches of people logging in and out and or forgetting to log out and or clicking on things. So there's, it's a prime vector for ransomware attacks. That's why hospitals are often targeted and they're targeted because they provide life-saving capabilities. They will pay to get the systems back up. And when you think about this, and I've written about this myself, how long before your awesome Tesla is targeted remotely by a bad hacker and your car is locked up when you're in the middle of nowhere and you have to pay a ransom in order to get your car to turn on again and drive away. Seems far-fetched. It's really not. People, individuals have to take some responsibility for their part in the ecosystem. As you said, nothing's for free. And when people start to do that, I think it will then push for governments to become better educated, for companies to have to listen to more points of view. And we're all participants in this, regardless of where you are in the industry. It's in fact, a, I think a responsibility of everyone in the technology industry to be aware of these key issues and to find a point of view that uh, is is solid and that brings value to their customers, constituents, their companies, uh, and frankly, society overall over the long term. Yeah, really, really complex stuff. So it is. turning back to acoustic and let's sort of bridge the conversation. As you go to market with your solutions in the marketing cloud, Talk about the importance of safety, security, integrity of the data, and how big a part that is in the overall growth of the company and as you build and extend your client relationships. Yeah, you know, we, we care very deeply over the fact that we're, we're working with our customers' data. Um, their data is kept securely uh, for no other eyes to see uh, but theirs, and we uh, we invest a lot in that, as all of the players in this space do. In fact, I think the companies that do MarTech and that send emails and SMS and do advertising for uh, big customers uh, do overall a very, very solid job of protecting and caring for the integrity and privacy of that data across the board. And uh, that's something we all take very seriously. Uh, but I also think that the growth in data 
is massive and the uh, emerging ability to uh, have to deal with decisions. Right? Let's take the example that occurred recently of the changes Apple will be introducing in the future that make it difficult or essentially impossible if a customer turns it off for people who send email to see if an email has been received or open. And, and if you've been in the email business or the marketing business for any period of time, you know that open rates and click-through rates are one of the benchmark metrics that everyone uses to judge their performance. So A, we have to think about metrics differently as we should, because those metrics actually have a lot of a lot of issues with them in terms of their value and really understanding what's going on. But B, immediately upon that uh, announcement by Apple, and there'll be subsequent announcements by other companies, I'm sure, there was a com massive discussion that sprung up around, well, okay, so what are all the ways around this? What are all the technologies we can build or do to get around this? And, and that was kind of surprising, but not to me. And it's, it's, of course, technology is always looking for a better way and a way around anything. But at the same time, it was like, try if you're a brand, a big brand, and you're trying to find a way around that, you seem to be missing the fundamental point. Like, the fundamental point is that is an opportunity to give people back the privacy that they actually think that they have. We have to do a better job making sure we as marketers put the right offer in front of the right people at the right time to get them to buy something that they will find valuable or at least entertaining. And we have to think about how we're going to deal with this endlessly changing landscape. Um, it's this, this is the moment. If you are a marketer, this is the moment at which you can actually help define the future of marketing and how we're going to be able to engage with our customers across every sector. Oh, what a what a great great statement! So, I've loved this conversation, Norman. It's areas that I'm, that are not uh, my natural areas of expertise, but it's just so fascinating. If we do this again in a year, what do you think we'll be talking about that we didn't touch on today? I think in a year, one of the things we will not have really touched on today and that uh, we will probably be spending more time on is in fact the the sort of aftermath of the security issues that we just barely touched on here um, for better or worse there's going to be significant there is the potential i should say for significant cyber attacks over the course of the next year. We all know that. It's in the paper every day. If, if one of those happens and um, turns into, uh, hopefully not, but turns into something that involves significant tragedy, loss of life, loss of property, in a way that people wake up to, I think it's going to shift the discussion across the board. And every company in the tech space and every government agency is going to have to rethink how they're approaching these issues. And, and I hope it doesn't happen, but you know, we, we can all just look at the news and see the ever escalating number and type of attacks. And, and I, I unfortunately 
I've taught myself to imagine the worst and prepare for it sometimes, but uh, that, that I think is something we'll be doing. But there's the one other thing I'd say on this question, though, is I also hope that a year from now we're talking about new ways that people have found to connect. I think the past year of living on, on Zoom and Teams and other video chat has changed how we see ourselves and how we see our place in, in the organization, in connecting with others. Uh, and I, I think there might be some unknown great innovations that come out of this period. Great. What a, what a, what an interesting conversation. Norman, thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed our conversation, uh, learned a whole bunch. And uh, I'm glad you ended us on a positive note. I have visions of the uh, you know, pa- power grid being shut off. Uh, yes, let's not end on that. I am an optimist. Uh, I believe that that technology is going to unleash even greater human potential. And, you know, Matt, it's actually a, a great pleasure to, to chat about these issues. Uh, and your questions were super on point. Thank you. Well, a pleasure, and we'll speak again soon, I'm sure. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. 